Let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, my preparation uh, this week will not make these words effective. Uh, Lord, um, uh, even just a, a, a cognitive assent uh, to the power of your word uh, is not enough. Lord, what we need is for your spirit to come and to make these words personal, make applications I could never make. And so I pray you would do that in these next few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. Um, this movie came out in 1990. What about Bob? Anybody in on What About Bob? It's really sad. Um, you should be in on What About Bob. Uh, what About Bob uh, has two lead characters. There's Richard Dreyfus, who plays a therapist, and there's Bill Murray. Bill Murray plays Bob. Uh, and Bob is a uh, person who struggles with a lot of phobias. And uh, there's a scene where Bob is in his first visit uh, with uh, the therapist, with Richard Dreyfus, who's, who's called Dr. Leo Marvin in the movie. And uh, Bob explains his condition like this. He says, I have problems. I worry about diseases. I have trouble with toothbrushes. And I have problems moving. The therapist responds, well, talk about moving. Bob says, well, as long as I'm in my apartment, I'm okay. I have a phone job selling dental supplies, and that's fine. But when I go out, I get weird. The therapist says, talk about weird. Bob says, I get dizzy spells, nausea, cold sweats, hot sweats, fever blisters, difficulty swallowing, difficulty breathing, blurred vision, involuntary trembling, dead hands, weak ankles, twitching, fainting spells, numb lips. And he pauses, and then he asks, Doc, do you think that's normal? Dr. Leo Marvin says, well, it depends. Then Bill Murray's character, Bob, removes an air sickness bag from his pocket. He opens it up. He pauses a long time as though he were about ready to vomit into it, but he doesn't. He puts the air sickness bag away. And then Dr. Marvin leans in. Bob does too. Dr. Marvin says, you do go out, you know. And Bob says, I do. Dr. Marvin says, you came here. Bob says, you're right. Dr. Marvin says, what are you afraid of? And Bob says, well, what if I break my neck and become a paraplegic? What if my heart stops beating? What if I can't find a bathroom and my bladder explodes? I mean, it is hilarious. This whole interaction. But the whole rest of the movie is you see Bob dealing with all his phobias. And you see that, his, that Bob becomes convinced that the only way that he's going to get better is if he gets to spend time with Dr. Marvin in as much life as possible. So he begins to kind of cram his way into his personal life. He, but Bob ends up going on vacation with his therapist and his family. But his phobias do not get any better. His phobias still dominate his life. And if you sit and you watch the movie, I promise you will laugh a ton. But if you sit and then reflect on the movie, I think you'll see that you've got your own fears, too. Now, you might not be afraid of not being able to find a bathroom, but you still have them. I mean, just think about the English language and the words we have for fear. There's uneasy, worried, nervous, anxious, tense, uptight, spooked, haunted, scared, afraid, panicked, terrified, and petrified. And they all represent different points on the intensity continuum of fear. It's kind of like Alaskan Native Americans. 
Alaskan Native Americans have 40 words for snow. And their vocabulary balloons with words for snow because of the centrality that snow plays in their culture. Well, our culture has ballooned with words for fear because it's so core to our experience. Different people fear different things with different levels of intensity, but we all fear the things that we can't control. And for Americans, Americans in the 21st century, control is very important. But we're not the first culture to deal with fear. The Bible addresses it as a key component of what it means to be human. So we're going to look at Psalm 27. The next several weeks we'll be looking at Psalms. We'll be focusing in on a different emotion. Last week, uh, Justin uh, taught us from Psalm 13 about lament. This week, we're going to do fear or anxiety. So let me read Psalm 27. Would you read along with me? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, this psalm, most scholars believe, has a context where David, who wrote it, is the king. And he's getting ready to enter into a battle, a military battle, with a formidable foe. And you can see how he talks about his foe throughout the psalm, can't you? Look at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, evildoers assail him to eat his flesh. Verse 2 also says, uh, also acknowledges the presence of his adversaries or his foes. Verse 3 says, an army encamps against him. A war arises against him, verse 3. He experiences a day of trouble in verse 5. He has enemies all around him, verse 6. He mentions his enemies again in verse 11. And then he mentions adversaries and false witnesses in verse 12. See, these are not imagined threats of David's life. They're real threats to his life. And they're real threats to the nation in which he leads, Israel. 
So he's got really good reason to be afraid. Well, it's not just all the lists and the ways he talks about his enemies where we see his anxiety. We also see his anxiety in verses 7 to 12 with a bunch of imperatives. Did you, did you catch that? In verses 7 to 12, there, he, he, he uh, asks the Lord, he says, Hear me, be gracious to me, answer, turn not, cast me not off, teach, lead, give me not up. Here's desperation. And even in verse 11, he imagines a scenario in which his own parents rejected. So you put all that together, and you can tell that David is being unbelievably realistic about his situation. And this is a little strange for us in the church when we think about fear, when we think about anxiety, many times. Many times the church poses to those who have fear and anxiety, they said, you need to be positive. You need to employ positive spiritual thinking. And when you do that, it's going to crowd out your anxiety. You need to put some spiritual rainbows and sparkles and unicorns all around your brain and say things like, I'm not afraid. God is sovereign. Too blessed to be stressed. But that's not what David does here. He's honest. He squares his shoulder to the threat outside of him, and he squares his shoulder to the fear that's within him. And friends, you and I have real enemies too, don't we? I mean, the Bible tells us that we live in a fallen world with sinful human beings who can really hurt us. The Bible says that we're sinners, therefore we're self-destructive and we hurt ourselves. The Bible also teaches us about Satan, who's the very embodiment of evil. So yeah, there are real things you really should be afraid of. Every single day can bring its own trouble. Might be difficulty with your boss. Might be a fracture in a friendship or a fracture in relationship with a family member. The thing you might be afraid of are the lies that are coming to you from Satan about yourself or the world or about God. But let me just say this. Fear is not always negative, you know. I mean, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Paul writes this. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Let me say that again. Paul says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So is Paul's anxiety here sinful? No. He's just being honest about his heart for the people under his care. And when you have fear and you find it, it probably is the best roadmap for you to discover what you actually value. But a healthy amount of concern can easily intensify into idolatrous worry. So how do you know when your heart has crossed the line from healthy concern healthy anxiety into toxic anxiety. Let me give you three things to look at. One are your physical symptoms. When the intensity of your fear ratches up, you might not be aware of it in a cognitive sense. It may not register with your brain, but it might just register with your body. See, what fear can do, it can cause shortness of breath for you. It can cause increased heart rate, clammy palms, tense muscles, racing thoughts, an inability to sleep. It can even cause digestive issues. Friends, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor somebody has come up to me and said, I went to the ER. 
I thought I was having a heart attack. And they go in, they had run all these tests on them, and the doctor can't find anything. And the first thing the doctor says to the person who's gone into the ER thinking they had a heart attack is this. Have you seen a psychiatrist lately? And usually the person who thinks they're having a heart attack looks at them, at the doctor, like they have ten heads. Because the last thing they thought about was that maybe they were anxious, not that they were actually having a heart attack. See, what happens in those situations is that your body is telling you what your brain is not. Your body is telling you you're toxically anxious and you need help. That's how you know you've crossed the line from healthy concern into toxic anxiety. There's another one. Another one besides physical symptoms. It's an obsessive behavior. Do, do you check to make sure your door is locked seven times? When you know that you locked it the first time? Do you check your email at all hours? You're afraid you're going to miss something important? If so, you may have crossed the line from healthy concern into toxic anxiety. Another one, what if questions? You might ask questions all the time. What if we don't have enough money? What if we get to the place we're wanting to go and, they, and no one's left there? What if no one likes my project? What if I'm not ready when they call on me? See, what, what the questions do, what, what if questions do is they look into the future and they import all the angst of possible doom into the present. And if those characterize you, those physical symptoms, that obsessive behavior, the what if questions, then you might have crossed the line from healthy concern into toxic anxiety. So how do you get out? How do we keep things we're concerned about from becoming things that we obsess over. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this. It says, One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, the cure for your worry, it's found in the temple. <laughs> it's in the temple where David gazes on the beauty of the Lord. It's in the temple where he dwells with the Lord. It's in the temple where he seeks after the Lord. And what the temple has done, it's become this reorienting factor for his whole life. But think about it. What did David see when he got into the temple? <laughs> what was the beauty he was looking at? It's not something, I promise, it's not something that you and I likely would have found very beautiful. For David, what he would have found are a bunch of animal sacrifices. There had been a bunch of dead animals. There had been a bunch of blood in the temple. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that in the Old Testament there was this very elaborate sacrificial system where God's people would sacrifice animals, and it was gruesome. But it communicated something very important to God's people. Communicated things about themselves and communicated things about God. Here's what it said about God. It said that God's holy, that you couldn't just waltz into his presence. There was nothing casual or laid back about worship in the Old Testament. You had to come prepared. It was costly. These animals cost them significant financial resources. The blood of the sacrifices said about themselves that they're sinful, that their sin was so serious that someone had to die, either the animal or you. 
It communicates more about God than just that. The way the Israelites saw the, the, the sacrificial system, it wasn't just that, it, it, that we see it as gruesome and they didn't. What they picked up on is that God had instituted this whole system so that he could have a relationship with them. He set up this whole system so that he could dwell with his people. He set this all up because he's merciful in spite of their rebellion. So what does that mean for you and me? It means a lot, actually. I, I, I know we don't ever kill anything on this table here. You know, it's not like you guys walk in here with pigeons or cows or sheep or lambs or goats or any, any other animal that they sacrifice in the Old Testament. We're not going to start that next week or next month. And it's all because Jesus is called the Lamb of God in the New Testament. It's the very first title that John the Baptist gives him when he sees him. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God has come into the world to save sinners. Jesus, at the end of the day, was sacrificed on a Roman cross. His sacrifice communicated the same things to the people in the early church as it does to us. It communicated the same things to the, the sacrificial system did for the Old Testament, people in the Old Testament. It communicated that God's holiness, his justice, and his righteousness because Jesus had to die. It also communicates his love for us because God's provided a way for us to dwell with him in Christ. So just like David says, I'm gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in the temple when he sees these sacrifices. We don't gaze at sacrifices. We gaze at Jesus hanging there on a Roman cross. From one angle of your view of his beauty, you see his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. From another angle, you see his love and his mercy and his grace. Because Jesus' death is what makes it possible for us to dwell with God. It's in Jesus that things have shifted a little bit. You don't have to come to a physical building like you did in the Old Testament. Now you can have this unbroken, intimate fellowship with God at all times in your whole life. And when you gaze upon Jesus at all these points, this unbroken fellowship, your anxiety will begin to dissipate. Because here's what's true. Our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerabilities of our greatest joys. Let me say that again. Our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerabilities of our greatest joys. That's why you have a lot of anxiety when you have a baby. Because they're vulnerable. That's why you have a lot of anxiety when you have a loved one who's very sick. Because they're very vulnerable. That's what happens when you have a, a, have a lot of anxiety when your job's on the line. Because you treasure it. But if God is your greatest joy, then you're safe. You can't lose him. <laughs> David grasped this at a, heart level, at a heart level, and that allowed him to go into battle. It resized his enemies. They now have become small, and God has become big. He knew the best thing his enemies could do, the worst thing that his enemies could do to him was to kill his body. He knew they couldn't take his soul. He knew his soul had been purchased and was held secure by his loving father. When you grasp that at a heart level, you can face your fear with confidence. You can face your anxiety about not having enough money. You can face your anxiety about being thought of as less than by your friends. You can face the anxiety that you have about putting on weight. 
You can face your anxiety about death. You can face your anxiety about sickness because you've gazed upon Jesus, the one who's cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. You've gazed on Jesus, the one who remembers your sin no more. You've gazed upon Jesus, the one who says that nothing can separate you from his love. You've gazed upon Jesus, the one who is kind to the unthankful and the evil, Luke 6.35. You've gazed upon Jesus, the one who's removed condemnation from you. You've gazed at Jesus who has blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen you. He's predestined you. He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. He's granted you forgiveness. He's given you an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. That's beautiful. That will dissipate your anxiety. Now maybe you're thinking, Marsh, all sounds great. You've got me feeling all warm and fuzzy, but what's this going to look like on Monday? What's it going to look like on Thursday? Let me give you a few. One is turn to the scriptures. Use Psalm 27. Use 1 Peter 5, 7. Use Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the lilies and the birds, Matthew 6, 22 to 33. And these aren't just abstract truths to memorize. This isn't just putting a spiritual blanket over it. They're real words from a real God who can really deliver on his promises. They're commitments from a person you can trust with your very life. And that's the reason that you can hope in the face of fear. So turn to the scriptures. You're sitting here and you're like, I'm an anxious mess. First application, memorize Psalm 27. Second thing you can do, take care of your body. Now you might say, well, gosh, Marsh, anxiety, this, this is an emotion. This is like all things in my head. I, I need mental help, spiritual help, emotional help. Why do I need help with my body? Well, you can take deep breaths. Deep, measured breaths where you say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, for five minutes will do more for you than you can possibly imagine. Another way you can treat your body is you can exercise. Because what exercise does is lower the volume of dread that you hear in your soul. Another thing you can do is you can go to the doctor. The doctor might just write you a prescription that you should take. Now you might say, Mars, it's a little weird, man. I mean, I don't, that's for really messed up people, you know. With diagnoses and they're, they're unfunctional adults and I, I can't take medicine. I'm going to just stick with Psalm 27. I like that one. Well, friend, let me tell you, you have a body. There's chemicals going on in your body that God gave you. And the doctor can help you. That might be more than just taking an SSRI. But you need to treat your body. The third thing you can do, you can get really serious about your unhelpful coping mechanisms to deal with your anxiety. See, most of us, what we do when we feel a lot of anxiety, there's two places we go. A substance or a screen. Because what substances and screens do is they help us disengage from our anxiety instead of dealing with it in healthy ways. But the problem with substances and screens is they just make matters worse, don't they? So maybe if substances is your outlet, then you need to get sober. You can't do it on your own. You're going to need a group. People who know way more about addiction than me say you got to go to 90, uh, you got to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You're like, Marsh, that's really extreme. Well, I'm just telling you. That's what the research bears out if you want to get serious about getting sober. 
The research also says that you will, on average, relapse 13 times. If addiction is a significant part of the way you deal with your anxiety. See, if you want to get sober, you can't just have an accountability partner. You can't just put a block on your computer. You can't just go see a therapist. You can't just get a devotional. It's a multi-step approach that's going to take a long time. And we at our church are committed to helping you get healthy. Maybe it's a screen. Maybe you need to get a dumb phone. Maybe you need to have somebody change your password, your social media accounts. I mean, it's just been proven over and over and over. There's a direct correlation to our anxiety and the time we spend on social media. Because what it does, it helps us disengage with our anxiety. Brother and sister, I hope you see that if anxiety is your Achilles heel, that you can't afford to not treat it. I know that's a double negative. You can't afford to not treat your anxiety. Every time you don't check your email, every time you don't commit to another thing, every time you take five minutes to breathe, you are entrusting yourself implicitly to the caring hands of Jesus. Every time you rest instead of worry, you're actively placing the battle and outcome in God's hands instead of yours. So brother and sister, will you put your life into his loving hands? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your one and only son to die for us. And Lord, forgive us for not believing that. Lord, forgive us for going to so many other places rather than coming into your temple and gazing at your beauty. Oh, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us? We need it. In Christ's name.